We are going to get into the, the sermon for today. We are going into continuing with our series on John chapter 11. That is a typo. It is actually verses 45 to 57. I apologize for that. We, uh, last week was a long passage. It was chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. And <clears throat> it was about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This was a linchpin miracle of Jesus's. This is a pivotal moment in John's gospel because it was the raising of Lazarus that set into motion a series of events that would lead to him being crucified to his death and to his resurrection. It was the raising of Lazarus that was um, the camel that, you know, the camel, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, for the religious leaders where they decided Jesus needed to die. And if you were here last week, and if you're familiar with the book of John, Jesus raised a man who was dead, Lazarus. He'd been dead for four days. Uh, his body had begun to decompose. Uh, when Jesus said, roll the stone away from the tomb, uh, Lazarus' sister Martha said, Lord, Lord, by this time there will be an odor because his body is already decomposing. It's the fourth day. The, the Israelites, they did not embalm people like the Egyptians did. The body began to decompose right away. But Jesus told them to roll away the stone, and he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, the dead man, was raised to life. He came out of the tomb, bandages covering his body, his hands, his legs, covering his face and all. He was raised from the dead. Many people saw this. Um, for John, this is one of the key miracles um, like a climactic moment that set into events, set into um, motion the events that would lead to the cross. So we're picking up from there, from the raising of Lazarus. And here it says in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary to the tomb, right, and had seen what he did, Jesus raising Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There were many, many people here who witnessed what happened. And it says that they believed in Jesus. Now, we know that that belief was a mixed bag. Um, they, they believed that he was somebody. Maybe they believed that he was the Messiah. Did they really understand what the Messiah meant? That he was the Son of God? Not so sure. Lots of these people probably in a few weeks' time would be ones that were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So they believed in him. They certainly believed that he was somebody who could work miracles. Maybe they believed he was a political messiah. Maybe some had true faith that he's the son of God. But it was a mixed bag, probably. But what's crazy here is, in verse 46, it says, but, but some of them went and told the Pharisees what happened. And that but, I believe, it feels adversative to me, meaning that these people did not believe in Jesus, and they went basically to report on him, to report on what he did to the religious leaders, <clears throat> which is crazy. That's crazy, right? Can you imagine? They just saw Jesus raise a man from the dead, and their response is basically, ooh, you raised somebody from the dead? I'm going to tell on you? And they ran, and they told the Pharisees, it's crazy, that they could have this kind of response after witnessing Jesus perform a resurrection. What's crazier is the religious leader's response. It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. Notice that they believe in the signs. They recognize that they're legitimate. They're not fake. They're not, say, they're not there saying he's a charlatan. These signs are fake. They're not real. They know that Jesus has performed these signs. They do not deny it. And they say, what are we to do? Well, we know what the answer is. We know what you should do. You should believe in him. You should believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But they say, what are we to do? What are we going to do about this guy? And they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Why? How could these religious leaders respond to Jesus' miracle in this way? What are we going to do about him? Isn't that crazy that they would respond this way? Well, in verse 48, um, John, you know, draws the curtain. Uh, you know, like uh, to use a Wizard of Oz reference, like we go behind the curtain and we see what the wizard is truly like, right? We get to see what's happening behind the curtain here and we see why these religious leaders are so resistant to Jesus even though they had seen all these signs. Here's the reason. They say if everybody believes in him, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they saying? Two things. First, Man, if if this keeps going and everybody believes in Jesus, the Romans, who are in command and in control, we are a vassal state of Rome right now, they are going to perceive this to be some type of popular uprising against Caesar, and they're going to come and they're going to crush it. They're going to crush it. They're going to bring their horsemen and their chariots, and they're going to crush it. And you know what's going to happen then? They're going to come and take away our nation, and they're going to take away our place. Our place. What do they mean by that? The religious leaders were going to lose their place of privilege, of power, which they enjoyed in Israelite society. They risked that being taken away because Rome would come with a heavy hand and they did not want to lose these privileges. They liked their privileges very much. Look at what Jesus says about them in the Gospel of Matthew. He said about the religious leaders, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Oh, they love it. They love this recognition. They love being honored. They love being given the best seat at the parties and the feasts and stuff. They love this privilege that they had, and they didn't want to lose this if the Romans came. Also, in Luke, in his gospel, Luke writes that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Not only did they like their position, but they loved the money and the wealth that they were able to accrue because of their position. This is one of the real reasons they were not willing to believe in Jesus. They were not willing to follow Jesus because they didn't want to risk losing their privilege and their status. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, Isn't this true and relevant for us today? Aren't we tempted as well? Don't we face that struggle? Because sometimes we don't don't want to follow Jesus. We don't want to represent Jesus. We don't want to identify or align as closely with Jesus in our workplace or in our school or amongst certain friends or people groups because we are afraid 
that we will lose our privilege. We will lose our status. We are afraid of the repercussions that may come if we go all in with following Jesus in a bold, unashamed, uncompromising way. Isn't that true? Don't we face the same struggle? If I really take this Jesus seriously, man, I have a lot to lose in this world. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, said we're not willing to lose that. So they wanted to kill Jesus. I don't think any of us want to kill Jesus, but we may try to ignore him, we may try to compromise, we may try to justify our unwillingness to really follow him all the way because we don't want to lose our status or our jobs or our recognition or just people thinking generally nice, pleasant thoughts about us. Because if we align that closely with Jesus, there are consequences, there are repercussions. Jesus himself said, no servant is above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Taken for granted that we are following him closely. So, what did they do? What did they do? In verse 49, it says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest, being the, the highest religious figure in, in Israelite society, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, I'm going to come back to this prophecy of Caiaphas's because it is crazy. It is absolutely amazing what is going on here in this passage. But, but let me just, before I do, let me just kind of complete the reading of this passage here. So it says in verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples, because it was not quite yet time for Jesus to go to the cross. It was really, really close, but not, not that day. Not that day. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Now, <clears throat> here, they gave these orders that Jesus would be arrested. If anybody knew where he was, let them know so that they could arrest him. Why? So that they could give him a fair trial? No. Verse 53 already said, they made plans to kill him. Pre they already had decided what they were going to do. Premeditated murder. <laughs> they were going to kill Jesus. Arresting him, followed by a sham, mock trial, that's what they were going to do. They had already decided to kill Jesus. Arresting was just the means by which to do so. Now, 
Certainly, as we've been reading through the book of John, we know that at various other times, people tried to lay hands on Jesus. They tried to kill him. They tried to throw him off a cliff. They picked up stones because they wanted to kill him. That happened multiple times, maybe many times in Jesus' ministry. But they were never able to. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. It was not yet time. But now, at this moment, Jesus' fate was sealed. They made plans, plans of premeditated murder to kill this man, Jesus. When Caiaphas, and John points out Caiaphas because the high priest here, when he gave his decree, his opinion, whatever it was, that sealed Jesus' fate. The highest religious leader of the land saying, this man needs to die. They made plans. Those, that word made plans means like resolved. That's, that's a part of the definition of that word. They resolved. This led, this precipitated the arrival of the cross in Jesus' hour. But they had to wait a few more days because Passover had not yet come and Jesus' death needed to coincide with the Passover because he is the Passover lamb. So this is what's happening here. Now, I want to go back here to verses, you know, 49 down to 52. And this is the meat of, of this passage that I want to talk about. And this is, this is absolutely amazing what's happening here about Caiaphas. Two things I want to talk about. First, it's what Caiaphas said, which was a prophecy here. What Caiaphas said, the content of what he said. And secondly, the second thing I want to focus on is the fact that he said it. Because John says that he prophesied that he prophesied, which is crazy, okay? So I'm going to look at these two things, what he said and then the fact that he said it. First, what did he say? What did he prophesy? Caiaphas, let me just read this one more time. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What was Caiaphas saying? Caiaphas was saying, this man, Jesus, needs to die. Why? So that Rome doesn't come and kill us. That's what he's saying. One man will die so that the nation can live. Jesus will die so that Rome doesn't kill us. What actually was God saying through Caiaphas? God was saying, yes, Jesus needs to die. One man needs to die, not so that Rome doesn't kill you, but so that God doesn't kill you. Not about, it's not about the, the judgment of Rome, the judgment of Caesar that is really at stake here. It is about the judgment of God that would befall us because of our sin. That's the real issue here. Caiaphas says one man needs to die for the many. That's what God said as well, but in a deeper way that Caiaphas did not understand. One man for the many. Friends, this is is what the Bible means when we talk about that theological term, substitutionary atonement. 
Right? Maybe if you've been around church for a little bit, you might have heard that term. I know it's very theological. But basically, what it says is that Jesus is our substitute to make atonement for sin. We were supposed to die for our sin. We are supposed to be judged for our sin. But God sent a substitute, his son, Jesus, so that we would not need to experience the judgment of God for our sin. Jesus took our place. Friends, at the very heart of the gospel, at the heart of the Christian message, is a message of substitution. That's what the gospel is about. Jesus took your place. He took my place, if you will believe in him. Friends, this is what the Old Testament was talking about. You ever wonder how people in the Old Testament, how did they, how did they believe in God? How did they get saved? It, it was because when they took an offering to the temple, when they took a, a goad or a bull and they brought it to the temple, what they were saying was, this animal needed to die, needs to die, because the penalty for sin is serious. But I recognize that it should have been me. I recognize that it should have been me. Because this animal cannot really take away my sin. Hebrews chapter 10 says this clearly. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and Jesus quoted Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So when, when, when the, the people in the Old Testament, those who had true faith in God, what did that faith look like? It looked like this. Whenever they brought that goat or that bull or that sheep to God, they brought it to God and it was sacrificed. It was killed and it was sacrificed on the altar. And they, and they were saying, I don't know how this works, God. I don't know. I, I should be the one to die for my sin. I should receive judgment. Not this goat, not this bull. That's not going to take away my sin. I don't know how this works, but somehow, somehow, one day you are going to provide a sacrifice you are going to forgive my sin through sacrifice i don't understand i know it's not these animals but in some way you are going to do that and then thousands of years later john the baptist sees jesus and says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world old testament believers were those who knew it should be me on this altar not this goat it should be me. I don't know how God is going to do it, but I deserve that death. And somehow he's going to wash away my sins. I offer this sacrifice in faith. God, that should be me. Provide the true offering. Provide the true sacrifice in whatever mysterious, amazing way you are going to do it. They always were looking forward to a substitute. They were waiting for a substitute. The Gospels are so full of irony. When, right before Jesus goes to the cross, and, and Pilate, knowing that Jesus was an innocent man, said to the crowds, do you want me to release Jesus to you? And they said, no. Who did they ask for? Barabbas. <clears throat> Who was Barabbas? Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was a killer. What did they do? What did the crowd say? What did they want? They gave life to one, to the one who took life, to Barabbas. They gave life to the one who took life, and they took the life of the one 
who gives life. Man, what a substitution that is. Brothers and sisters, friends, we are Barabbas. You are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Every single one of us is Barabbas. We are the ones that deserve the judgment of God because of our sin that we could never atone for on our own. But instead, God took his own son and gave him for us. We are Barabbas. That's why Romans 3 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has sinned. Nobody is good enough. We all deserve the judgment of God. Even your nice elderly neighbor grandmother, her, that sweet old lady, has sinned before God and deserves the judgment of God. Every single person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, it says, the wages of sin, what we should be paid because of our sin, is death. Not just physical death. Everybody's going to die unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime. But he's talking about the second death. Eternal punishment and separation from God in hell because of our sin, because that is what we deserve if it weren't for the free gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Something that we could never earn, never ever earn. No matter how many nice things you've done in your life, we could never earn this. It's like when my kids, when they ask me, Mom, Dad, are we ever going to buy a house here in Silicon Valley? I said, no, I don't know. It's too expensive. And they said, oh, we can help chip in. Isn't that sweet and completely ineffective? <laughs> so sweet and so useless at the same time. I'm like, oh, thank you so much, son. You're going to give me your, 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 your Lunar New Year money and, you know, from the envelope, red envelope or, you know, your birthday money. That's so sweet of you. Does nothing. <laughs> Does nothing. Actually, it contributes a little bit, 0.00001% towards the down payment or something like that. Our good works do absolutely nothing, have done nothing to remove the wrath of God from us because of our sin. Nothing. Salvation is a free gift, unearned in any way from God. He chose to freely give his son. And this is why when we feel condemned, when we feel guilty, when we feel not good enough because of our sin, friends, hang on to Romans 8.23, which says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it. Friends, when you feel condemned by sin, know that God has condemned sin by his son. When you feel like a failure, when you feel like you don't measure up, when you feel like you failed God again and again and again and again, and you feel unworthy of the grace of God, and, and, and that guilt and the devil is condemning you and pointing at you, know that God has condemned that sin within you by his son. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. When you feel like a failure, like you're not good enough. Maybe you feel like 
a failure of a husband or a wife. Maybe you feel like a failure as a parent, losing your temper or teaching your kids the right things. Maybe you feel like a failure as a son or a daughter in how you treat your parents. Maybe you feel like a failure with your friends or people that you've let down. Know that Christ has condemned the sin that is condemning you. When you feel like a failure, because you, you again and again, Lord, I've been ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I've been fearful of who I am and, and of you and of representing you. God has condemned that failure within us. When you, when you are beating yourself up because of your failures regarding, regarding purity and lust, and so often what we do is we just self-flagellate and try to beat ourselves up and, and try, to, try to earn your way back to God because that sin is there condemning you, saying you are terrible, you sin again and again and again, you're nothing. God has condemned that sin within us. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts even for things way in the past. And sometimes those things in the past that you still feel guilty about, you still struggle with, you, it's for a reason. Because you feel like you really messed up. Maybe you really hurt somebody and that is eating you up and you feel terrible because there are words that you said that you cannot take back. Maybe you struggle with the guilt of having had an abortion. Maybe things that you just did that you hurt others. And you look back and you feel terrible about those things, mistakes that you've made in your life. When those things condemn you, in Christ, Jesus has condemned the sin. This is substitution. It says, yes, I do deserve condemnation. Yes, I am not good enough. Absolutely in every way. I'm not going to try to say I'm good enough in any way. But what I can say by the grace of God is Jesus substituted. He took my place. He died for me. He took my sin upon himself, upon the cross, so that when God looks at me, he sees no sin. He sees the blood of Christ that has finally and truly washed me clean in a way that the blood of goats and bulls in a way that my good works could never do. Jesus has cleansed me. He substituted for me. This doesn't mean that we take the grace of God in vain, that we just sin again and again because Jesus is my substitute. No, it doesn't mean that, but it means we can pick ourselves up when we fail, when we fall. We do not need to live under the condemnation of the devil or even our own hearts. It's like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he told his disciples to, to keep watch and pray, and they kept falling asleep again and again and again, three times they couldn't stay up and pray in Jesus' hour where he most needed them to pray and intercede. They couldn't do it. And what did Jesus do when he came back to them? When he saw them sleeping for the third time, did he say, you losers, that's it. We're done. You're not my disciples. What did he say? He said, rise. Let us be going. Rise. He said, get back up and come with me. That's what God says to us in the midst of our condemnation and our guilt. He says, you are not condemned because of the blood of Christ, but neither do we take advantage of the grace of God. Jesus says to us, rise, come on. I believe in you because the Holy Spirit is within you. Come, follow me. As Proverbs 24, 16 says, one of my favorite verses, though the righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. 
we get back up because of the grace of God, because God has forgiven us, because Jesus has taken our place. The heart of the gospel is about substitution. Jesus took your place. Friends, if you're not a Christian, this is the heart of the gospel message. If you want to know what Christianity is about, it says none of us are good enough. If you're here thinking, oh, church might make me a better person, I might do some volunteer work, and then I'll earn my way into heaven, God will accept me when I get there, that's not how it works. Substitution is the heart of it. I could never earn my way into heaven, but Jesus opened the door for me if I will trust in his saving work upon the cross. Substitution. That's what Caiaphas said. Now, That's the first crazy thing. The second crazy thing is the fact that he said it. What do I mean by that? John says in verse 51 that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He said Caiaphas prophesied. What is prophecy? Prophecy is when you speak in behalf of God. You speak in behalf of God. Who, now, who prophesies? Well, we think in the Bible, we think about John the Baptist and Old Testament prophets. In the New Testament, we believe as a church that God still speaks through his children today, that we can at times prophesy if the Spirit moves in that way, that we can speak in behalf of God. Not like the Bible, not like infallibly, like thus saith the Lord, But we do believe that God can, when we hear right, speak through us. But we normally think about it's Christians that can hear from God, the prophets of the Old Testament, these people. But Caiaphas, this guy who basically set into motion the murder of Jesus, prophesied? Isn't that weird? If I were John and I was writing this gospel, I wouldn't have written that. (laughs) I would have just said, Caiaphas said, this man needs to die. I would, that'd be a lot cleaner, less uncomfortable. It'd be easier to say, right? But no, John takes pains to say. And John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said this, so we know it's true. Caiaphas prophesied. What was Caiaphas saying, as I talked about before? One must die for the many. God spoke through Caiaphas. That's true. One must die for the many. But Caiaphas, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're, what you're saying is true but you have no idea how much deeper it runs than that. It's not just about our nation, a political border. It's not about that. It is about the salvation of the world, of all those who would put their faith in Jesus. Now, if this seems weird to you, go read your Old Testament. God prophesied through Balaam, who Balak hired to go and curse the Israelites, right? He was not an Israelite. He was like a a Moabite. And and Balaam goes and he prophesies and said, God, through his spirit, speaks through him. Speaks through him. He prophesied through Balaam. Not only did he prophesy through a false prophet, Balaam, God spoke to Balaam through Balaam's donkey. (laughs) He not only prophesied through a false prophet, but he prophesied to the false prophet through his donkey. Through his donkey, right? God works in mysterious ways, but if he can do that, God can speak through anybody, 
Anybody? He chooses to. Now, he can do it. Again, why? Why, John? Why, Lord? Why do we need to know that Caiaphas was prophesying? Because, because of this. God wants to make it abundantly clear, crystal clear, that Jesus' death was not a tragic turn of events, was not this unfortunate thing that just happened. No, it was the very plan of God. God was completely in control, never out of control, not for one moment. Even at the moment, the apex, the apogee of, of this evil decree, this man must be murdered, that set into motion his crucifixion, even at that very moment, God was in control. Nothing happens outside of his ordained will and plan. This is why we just have to go back to chapter 3. To see there, when Jesus said, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It was the plan of God all along. God's plan. You know, he also mentions the high priest. He mentions, he, if you read through the gospel, he mentions the high priest three times. Specifically, it's like he really wants us to know it's the high priest that set into motion these events. Why? Why? I think also because in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, which today um, Jews celebrate as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that one day a year, the high priest and the high priest alone would take an animal, a sacrifice, into the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice and atonement for the nation, for the people of God. I think in some ways... Caiaphas is offering sacrifice here as the high priest, but he doesn't even know it. It wasn't his intention, but God is fulfilling his will of substitutionary atonement through Jesus. He reverses things in the most incredible ways. Friends, what, do we, how, what does this mean for us? This is unbelievable encouragement for us, friends. Because what it says to us is even in those moments of greatest darkness, of greatest despair, of greatest hardship, of greatest suffering that you're going through, God can be in that. It is not out of God's control. God can be working there in those moments. You don't need to, to despair and say, God has abandoned me. No, if God was working in this very moment of Jesus going to the cross, the most heinous event that ever happened in the history of the world. How much more could God be in the midst of your darkness and your situation? God is in control. He's with you. We see this. We just finished reading the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis in the two-year Bible reading plan. What was the story of Joseph's life? His brothers betrayed him, sold him into slavery, but God used him to save the world from a famine. Joseph was the Christ figure. Joseph prefigured what Jesus would do, attacked by his brothers, given up to the cross, 
in order that many lives would be saved through him. Look at Joseph understood this. What did he say? He said, as for you, he said this to his brothers after their father Jacob had died and his brothers thought, oh my gosh, Joseph is going to kill us now. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me by selling me into slavery. Remember that? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In the midst of, can you imagine being sold by your brothers into slavery? He came to see years later that the deepest darkness of his life, the moment of greatest despair in his life, God was there working. And he turned that around. He reversed that to bring about saving the world from famine. And even more than that, Joseph, to show the world what the Christ would be like, who Jesus would be like. This is how God works. This is what God does. And if you are a Christian, friends, Romans 8, I love this, says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Does he say some things? Does he say a few things? All things. All things. Everything can work together for your good. How can that possibly be? Because my life stinks in so many ways. How can that be? God can work through it, friends. If you give God your pain, if you go to him in your hardship, if you seek him in your failures, if you go to him in your sickness, if you go to him in your disease, if you go to him in your broken, go to him in your brokenness, God can can help you to grow through that experience. He can help you to trust him. He can help you to see that he loves you. He can help help you to see that heaven is more real. He can help you to long for that more. He can show you that his grace is sufficient for you. There's no limit to what God can do, how he can take coal and turn it into diamonds in that darkness of your life. This is what he does. And if you are a Christian, if you are a son of God, he works all things for the good of those who love him. This is what he does, friends. I, you could say that the worst thing that ever happened to my dad was cancer because it killed him. It took his life three years after he was diagnosed with it. He went through incredible suffering. But God worked the greatest thing in his life through that because it was through that that he came to put his faith in Jesus. He took, my dad smoked. It's his own fault. God was so merciful. He took that which destroyed his life and he used it as a means to humble my father, to show him that life is short, to show him that life is mortal, to think about life beyond this life. And my father put his faith in Jesus, was so weak from cancer, he couldn't go out, but he got baptized in our bathtub in our home. God did that. God did that out of cancer. He brought eternal life. Even me and my Christine and my family coming here to the Bay Area and planting Renewal Church with a bunch of you. And I love this church. I feel like God's here. God's doing great stuff. It, it, it was initiated out of a period of real darkness of, of, of what happened in New York and, and, and the moral failure of a, a mentor of mine. And that just led to us end up coming out here in the invitation of Radiance and starting this church with a bunch of you. And God is bringing life. I love this church. I love you guys. God is doing so much good out of such darkness. God works good out of darkness. Friends, this is why we are more than 
conquerors. The Bible says we are more than conquerors because God is in control. Friends, the gospel message, the gospel message is one of reversal. God turns things around. He took you and he substituted you for Jesus. And he takes the worst and the darkest situations that you are in. And when you turn to him and when you seek him, God takes that and works it for your growth and your salvation and your sanctification. Let's pray, friends.